0: and it was my ceo who stepped in and said look the reason you're doing what you're doing is because i pushed you it's my sense of impatience that got you where you are i told the board it's me that drove you and in that moment he made it okay for me to fuck up because he told me in that moment you fuck up i got your back and i'm the one that falls on not you
1: What's up, standouts? It's Yolanda, and this is episode number four of How She Did It. I'm interviewing my friend, Salmia Murthy, who is the chief marketing officer for Seven Lake Technologies, a challenger brand in the big data technology space. I love chatting with women who have chief or head in their title, because I know they will have some great stories and lessons learned. And Salmia didn't disappoint. I think you will get a lot out of this episode. For links to what we chat about in this episode, check out the show notes page for this episode at nts.today forward slash four. And now let's start the show.
0: Hi, y'all. I'm Samia Murthy, and there's so many ways to describe me, but I'll start with what you asked, which is what do I do? I'm a chief marketing officer at Seven Lakes Technologies. It's a challenger brand in the big data technology space, and we focus very much on, on the oil and gas industry.
1: Tell me a little bit about your early days. I grew up in Bangalore, India.
0: My childhood was filled with a lot of play, a lot of eating, uh, mango eating competitions in the backyard and um, sitting on uh, stoops and making as many friends who would pass me by and filled with a lot of people. And I literally had a village raising me, uh, my mom's family, my dad's family. So I was in the middle of a lot of people. So a lot of love, a lot of play, Uh, a lot of different languages. I moved here when I was 16. What did you do to get rid of your accent? I think if you'd put me in Scotland, I would have most likely sounded Scottish and you wouldn't have known. One of my superpowers is to get the other person to see themselves in me so that they can make space to see me eventually. And to answer your question a little bit more tactically, I watched a shit ton of at Night Taxi and Happy Days. And so culturally I was about a generation behind so I'd go to school and say you dig and like I would say stuff that just <laughs> wasn't and I had a very valley girl you'll still hear that in me it's not because I live in the
1: valley now it's because it's where I learned Americana was there like a work relocation or why did your family yeah so my mom my my aunt, who
0: to this day is probably one of the most generous women I, uh, woman I know, she is a um, OBGYN and she started. She moved to Ireland and to America, and she started a practice here, and she sponsored her siblings and my mother is the oldest sibling and they these two were very close with each other and so it was only a matter of time and we applied it takes 10 plus years to get a green card right so Mm -hmm. they'd applied I think in I don't know we came here in 92 probably 82 ish and so you you know you set it and forget it you don't sit around for 10 years and so one day you know my mom came knocking on my door I was about to go to co- I just started college at 16 and she's a pack up, we're moving countries. And it was just, just a sad, sad day. Right. Why wow. well, I don't want to say Well, teenage girl in the bloom of her life, making brand new friends. And I was studying to be a doctor. Life had very different plans for me.
1: Okay. So I'm going to backtrack a little bit. Yeah. So you graduated from High school, when you were 16. Tell me a little bit about high school.
0: When I came to America, I made a decision to take a year back. So I I'd finished 10th grade, and in India, you just go straight to college from there. So I went and repeated my 10th, primarily because I said, you know, this is my cultural year. I'm going to learn Americana. So that year, I really just sat back and soaked in the culture, the accent. I spent most of my time just like playing and finding out about I didn't know what a nickel and a dime was. Just simple things that everyone takes for granted. I had to learn. High school was torturous, right? Because one, accent. Two, I'm one of maybe a handful of non-white kids in the school. And coming from the culture I did, we hold hands and we, we touch a lot, we hug. And so I would have butch and dyke written on my lockers, uh, which I had to go look up the dictionary mm-hmm. and like, what's that? And and I was like, well, what is a lesbian? And so so I didn't even know enough to know that, that it was coming from a place of hate. What I learned was in America, people have a lot of issues about proximity of space and demonstrating love physically. So there was all this part of like I had to learn not to be me. And that part was most of what high school was. What I ended up doing because I had to channel it somewhere. I ended up starting a debate team. I would enter radio shows. I was like, you don't like my accent. I'm going to say the Pledge of Allegiance to you every day on the loudspeaker. I basically said, you don't think this is cool. I'm going to be everywhere. I don't know exactly why I reacted that way. Um, and I don't even know it was a reaction, except for I didn't have any other way to express so I chose media.
1: You could have approached that really in two ways, the way that you did, or you could have just shut down.
0: Yeah. Why do you think? Oh, it was my English teacher. He didn't see anything but the me. And I remember going to him, like, my accent, my thing. he goes, without even thinking twice, he's like, start a debate club. I was like, what do I need? He goes, you need a sponsor. I'm your sponsor. You know, I didn't realize what a
1: privilege it was to have that. He was giving me access to his privilege. In India, you were planning on becoming a doctor. When you graduated from U.S. high school, what did you think you wanted to do as a career? Oh, journalism. Are you kidding me? And I said, oh, I'm going to be on the
0: radio and I'm going to be on TV. And I wanted to carve my path to be an anchor. And so I picked up journalism in college, which it broke my poor mother's heart because she really had... Her heart set on a cardio surgeon it's ironic because I never would have done that if everyone would have just accepted me, right? I'm so super grateful people cast me to the side because, boy, had, it, had they not done that, I keep thinking of how I would just become one of the goats. I was meant to stand out, so there was no other choice. So I took up uh, journalism and Spanish literature. And where did you go to college? Towson University. At the time I knew I was going to be the primary caregiver for my parents. They were fully able to take care of themselves. It's just I was already at the time paying for bills and I knew financially I would be a stronghold for them. So wherever I went I needed to be close enough. I had let go of my dream of California. because My whole since I landed was what is the fastest road to California? Why California? I wish I had a great reason. I think it's because of Hollywood. I'm such a big movie buff. I mean my dad and I would go watch two three movies a day did you major in journalism there i did and and, uh, spanish literature so
1: are there some people or events that influence your career aspirations
0: somewhere along the way the, the the profession of public relations started to which is quite different than journalism both angles what you're doing is you're telling the story of somebody one you could say is more objective journalism one is far more you're making the story But it was always about the story. And so going into public relations felt like it fit me more because I wanted to make a the story. (laughs) Back then I didn't know these words but this was always in the back of my mind that I'm putting something out on the world and the world then
1: sees what I'm seeing. So when you graduated what did you do next?
0: I was waiting tables a CEO of a startup would always come by at the bar and sit down and he just loved my spunk and he was there with his head of marketing and said hey there's this thing called the dot com boom that's happening. I said dot what? It was 1999 and we would love to have the energy. He he pulled me into his world of technology and the bug bit me right out of college there were maybe 20 30 people and he was just an incredible visionary so I was part of helping them create what we call the digital divide and who we were selling to were the underserved urban communities who didn't have access at the time to the last mile which is the telephone back then the internet we created an entire brand
1: around it so what did you specifically do at that company
0: when I went in it was to, they had a culture of you're going to pick up the phone and you're going to serve the customer, the customer support because mm-hmm. we want you to learn what it means to be part of a telephone company. Back then they'd just been deregulated and so your competitor is also your wholesale like they're giving you your phone lines. So they would give me like what I call pigtail projects. You can't never really straighten out a pigtail. They would give me this peg and go and just straighten the tail and I would just never give up. One of the pigtail projects was go figure out market sizing of this digital divide and at that time I had no idea, of, I mean I studied Spanish literature. So how did you
1: tackle that project? He
0: had mentioned that there's this thing called the Bureau of Labor Statistics. So I called them and I said, I will come and sit with you till you teach me. So I drove to D.C. And this guy, clearly people don't drive to the Bureau of Labor Statistics and sit with them. He was so excited. So I sat with the statistician. till he taught me everything he could. He gave me all the data. And so I became the one person who knew the market. I was the one the CA would put in front of money people because they want to know what's this market market about and they're like yeah she'll tell you sometimes you gotta pick up the
1: phone it's still true what led to you leaving that company and what did you do next
0: what started happening was at that age I didn't realize that I would go to work and feel this heaviness of not wanting to go in there and be afraid and a lot of it was sexual harassment I just didn't realize it um telling me that I would look good in his pants I was too busy being strong this man had struggled with multiple battles of this and that's why I'd left corporate and he struggled with that with quite a few other women. So what was a disservice was the other women, older women executives did not come to the support of the other women, there, knowing the predatory nature of not just him, but also his general counsel. Well, what I did know was super confusion because here was a man who was spending hours coaching me on becoming an excellent marketing person. I mean, hours on teaching me statistics, hours on presenting who I was. And I felt this benevolence of a CEO who is coaching me grooming me. Fortunately for me, I'd mentored for a wonderful, wonderful woman. So she, I'd gone to her, I, I was volunteering for something and I'd run into her and explained the situation and she, you could, I still remember her face. And she had said, if you are ready to leave that, I have a position for you. All of that added up to this sensation of complete confusion. And so going and working for her shifted that mode. And I never really thought about it after that until a long
1: time after Okay, so really fortunate, someone offered you a job. So what did you do there? That
0: was, it was a nonprofit, getting people to move to live in Baltimore city. I will say I've had a career of selling and marketing the most interesting products that other people are like, what, what she did for me again, was this like thing of, yeah, this is what you'll go do. As if I was supposed to be able to do that. So you don't think, oh, ah, it's a stretch goal. She had me at twenty two, twenty three 23 teaching realtor classes, what the kind of loans and grants and possibilities of neighborhoods and marketing each neighborhood, giving them details. And, and there I was working with realtors to get them coached up.
1: What skills did you need in order to be successful at that job?
0: Being able to teach more than anything, get past my age and what I believed I should know, could know, and speak to serve as opposed to speak to advice and speak to provide opinion. Explain the difference. So speaking to serve, I would stand in front of the class with this complete intent of imagining these realtors being able to walk away and make money because of the kind of information I was giving them so I would always come in with the y'all need to make money this is how you could use when someone comes in you are able to give them all these additional things that are of no extra cost to you but it, to them you're going to be heroes speak to serve was where I set this mindset of customer experience and uh, the other big thing was in a, a true sense of entrepreneurship because how you generate revenue for nonprofit right so we would go make relocation kits and she had designed the outside look and feel of it and I would go to all these different places and get they would give it to the free because you're and I'd put them together and we charge people 10 bucks for each kit.
1: Live Baltimore made money with selling other kits and I'm assuming that you charged for, for the, the referral
0: the- to realtors yeah so we also yeah. charge they would come and think about it people would come in and what's their first point of contact live Baltimore they're not calling a realtor first they want to get to know what's okay. happening in the city because we were promoting living in Baltimore City. So whenever we would get that, we'd say, hey, we work with realtors who specialize in knowing neighborhoods and they can connect you to your next home. And then my job was to give referrals to realtors. So they paid to be part of that referral bank. Why did you leave? I wanted to be generating revenue. I wanted to be building business. And why? I wish I could tell you, but my family is full of healers or doctors and nurses. And I mean, if we could stop talking about past life, that's the only other option option. It's not like I grew up having a lot of examples of it either. I naturally gravitated towards, I hadn't even seen boardrooms in movies. I still just remember having this vivid image of me at the head of a big round circle table. I don't know where this table came from. I just remember being at the head of it and running the show. And I just started researching on where do people get to do that? And they were like, you gotta go be the boss. So I just always knew I'd be the boss. When you know that, and you've seen this image of you leading people, People and whatever that looks like you know how you hear people say nobody grows up dreaming they'll go to an office and and I go no no actually Someone does. So. so how did you find that? So that dream came back up again a lot. when I And it started because Tracy gave me the opportunity to speak in front of people. And, and then I, I said, I want to go do this. I want to go drive a business. So the very first step, I just started to look for an opportunity. And it happened to be in technology. They were looking for a marketing person. It was, it was a systems integration type company. So how did you
1: find that opportunity?
0: It's the only opportunity to this day that didn't just land in my doorstep. That one I actually had to go look for and apply to this day I don't know what about my resume because I was working for a nonprofit, yeah. got me in the door but what I learned then was once I get in the door interviews aren't challenging for me because I, I will show up as myself and if the role is described as it is we'll get the gig
1: so you're a marketing manager there mm-hmm. and how was that different from what you had been doing before
0: so this stint wasn't my most empowered the founder had run certain things a certain way whereas I was used to bosses for better or worse that just said you Can do that, and it was 10x bigger than I'd ever done. So here it was completely opposite. He'd give me these piecemeal sized, like go write this one article or go do this because there was a sense of like, what will she do if you just give her too much rain? So I I found it very constricting, and I think he struggled with me. I struggled with him now, but it was a great place for me to discover. It's the first time I went from like having seen myself in a boardroom to I want to sit at the table. So what does one do? and it occurred to me I need to know my financial you need to fall in love with the business and the money so I, I knew I had to go to business school at
1: that time was there something that started shifting that for you more? what happened
0: was after the the disappointment and I would say the shame of the way I left and I still hadn't dealt with it from my um, telecom startup I finally started to go god there was so much about that I hadn't picked up See, having the right EBITDA and being able to show that you can, can drive revenue this isn't just some course back in the day people were getting funded without having having shown any path to revenue they that still was, do right <laughs> right who still do. so that company was different they had generated rent so i but i didn't know any of the languages like why does he but why do you need to know what's an income statement and why is that so different than cash flow statement so i knew then that if i wanted to have that seat never start my company i needed to go learn the basics i chose business school and very specifically because i wanted access to the people in the world of business and i had none i had no network Work. So I caught on to this whole idea of privilege and access at a pretty
1: young age. I was just thinking about like recognizing the privilege and access. And that um, I didn't
0: wonder. have I didn't have to have it on my own. Somebody else could give me access to it. And in the spirit of full disclosure, for the most part, it's spin, really powerful white men who've made it happen for me. Well, because they are um, there. What they loved about me, each one of them is my god, your work ethic and your relentlessness. So at the end of the day, these were men who recognized their privilege and at the same time had a purest view of what was needed for the business to run. And that was something I could work with. I could show you relentlessness and I could show you this other thing called work ethic. And it, I found out that the third thing that almost didn't matter was being smart. It actually didn't matter as much as the ability to be relentless and resourcefulness in solving problems. And so yeah, learning access and privilege and recognizing I didn't need to have it. I just needed to go be there and put myself in a place and they'll just pull me in.
1: So you went to University of Maryland. Yeah. I again picked
0: universities that had entrepreneurship so that I could be building my business while I was in college and I wanted a program that what I didn't do in undergrad was go study abroad because my mama and in her infinite wisdom said, sweetie, you are abroad. Please can you learn the American culture? Where'd so you go? I, I didn't. I picked a school, a university that would We'd allow for that to okay. do a global programship. Yeah. But it's also where I did start traveling. My business school friends uh, Malika in particular just this like super powerful New Yorker from Brooklyn just introduced me to travel she said I haven't been anywhere we're going to Belize for spring break I'm like really and that changed my life I haven't stopped backpacking since then when you were getting your MBA were you full-time were you working? I was full-time yeah I doused myself in it my then mentor who gave me my first gig Jeff he hired me while I was still in school even though I I resisted it because I was in graduate assistantship and I was working for a venture capital firm. And he said you can handle it. It was quite a bit. My goal was to network mm-hmm. and what I learned about networking then was what I already knew which is surf. So can you
1: talk about one particular relationship that you nurtured?
0: I would say one of the closest relationships I developed, a couple of them were uh, Malika and Christy. I gravitated towards, didn't realize it at the time, towards women of color and were they your
1: same year? Yeah.
0: One's Filipino, one's black. At the time, I didn't realize it. We could have spurned each other, right? Because we're alpha and they could have said, boy, this girl is out to get whatever she can and she's all business or they could have made me out to be that person. Instead, they brought me in closer. When I went through a breakup, there was Christy who pulled me in and nurtured me. My body just said, see ya. And she nurtured me through that, took me home and, and to her family. And Malika is the one who said, you're going through the stuff. We might as well do it in Belize. She said, while in Belize, we're going to not talk about this. She completely changed my life because after that, travel is became a portal. I say a portal because portals are where you leave one energy field and you go to another so you can experience yourself in a way you've never experienced yourself. And then you bring that person back ended up backpacking with her where'd you backpack so we did asia she'd already done asia i think she was just kind and generous and because i'd never done anything everything she planned would be meticulous and i would pick places with bed bugs and, and she'd go i told you to book things and i'd say i have the first night I figured out couldn't we figure out the rest when we get there and i realized that was my travel style to this day mm. and um she recently called me and said you know i'm
1: trying out your style this whole like book one thing and then figure it out and it warmed the cockles of my heart so you finish your MBA and you get it in finance and strategy, what's next?
0: I wanted to be that person, be that woman person that's going to just rock that spreadsheet. I could. I just was so much better at feeling the energy of a room and getting people to bind ideas that they couldn't even fathom they would, would you know, so I gravitated towards marketing and sales because of that. You were a
1: consultant with BearingPoint? I did. I wasn't
0: done with schooling as such, okay. and consulting just gave that space.
1: Is there like a memorable project that, or company that you work with during your time? The
0: largest stint was Cisco, the food distribution company, and project is memorable for a few reasons. Number one, again, I landed up with an engagement manager and a managing director who were like, oh yeah. You go hang out with the COO and the head of this because you can go drive revenue doing this. Over time, when I look back, I was always pushed into like, go make us the money role. I kept resisting that till this particular role. So that project is memorable because I had to prove my financial modeling skills. Uh, The company had just acquired $2 billion in assets and they had to figure out how to uh, make the the, the business units um, profitable. I just thoroughly enjoyed traveling the country, meeting the different operating centers, very male-driven environments. I was walking into chicken coop plants and vegetable cutting plants and this 28-year-old walking in and interviewing Dell's executives. So that was an incredible experience. So what skills require interviewing? You cannot be a strategic thinker and not love problems. You must love the discovery of problems and the discovery of business and business models. We would, for example, their case interviews that companies at McKinsey and do, why, why do they do that? They're looking to see how you solve problems. In order to do that, you have to love defining the problem first. And so a huge part of the skill set is that they call it being analytical. For me, it is still less about being analytical, and there's so much pushed in about linear thinking and it's step one, step two, you do your SWOT analysis. So I learned all those pieces. What I learned though is the ones who really are problem solvers are hyper creative, hyper lateral thinkers. And so I learned that of myself, that I would go in and solve problems in a way that most of the linear thinkers had not cracked the code yet. The best thing that ever happened to me in that span of my career was that this development of structured curiosity and scientific thinking. The best thing
1: strategy consulting gives you. Did Bearing Point have a philosophy, or in how they did these interviews, or was that something that you figured out on your own? Like, how did you know how to become this better type of interviewer?
0: The type of thinking of hypothesis-driven and interviewing is there. They teach you a lot of that. And frankly, while we were part of Bearing Point, we put a lot of hours into grooming your ability because. You're taking in 27, 28-year-olds and putting them around executives. The only way you can make that gap in age and experience work is if you give frameworks within which these guys can then solve problems.
1: Hey standouts. In each episode, I'd like to take something my guest says and provide a resource on how you can develop that skill. So this week, my resource is related to curiosity. As a consultant, Salmia learned how to apply structured curiosity when she was interviewing her clients. If you consider a lack of curiosity a flat side, check out the book, Curious by Ian Leslie. One of the chapter titles is Stay Foolish, so I think it might be light and helpful. A link to the book can be found on the show notes page at nts.today slash four or check your local library. Was there someone or some situation that helped or hindered you? I'd say help. Chris
0: Ritchie, you couldn't have picked a man more opposite than me. Also, super linear thinking, super structured, very stoic. Contain, I think, the fact that I would wear a banana yellow shirt. I found out later he used to drive him nuts, but he was just a lover of talent. And what was great about him is that he saw what I could bring to the table and never once made me feel out of place for who I was. And he accessed that. He needed to understand the temperature read of the team and the energy energy of the team it's me pulling and go okay give me a read where's everyone and this was a demarcation of where i knew what i was bringing to the table wasn't being measured the fit of this energy thing so the, the good news was the seed was planted that i bring something to the table that one is going to threaten a lot of people two if it doesn't they'll want to map capitalize on it those are the people i want to gravitate towards because at the end of the day this is business this is about driving revenue and you want somebody who gets what you can do to drive revenue and the third part is Most corporations don't know how to measure energy, especially spiritual energy. So, who does? Right. (laughs) all of it means you have a sense of groundedness that allows you to deal with a high threshold of uncertainty that's thrown at you and the person who gets rooted in their truth and their inner voice is the one you want in the room because everyone else is feeding off of that energy and also learning how to stay grounded in theirs so then you are in that position with full joy because what else you got so how did you nurture that in yourself? It didn't. I fought that a lot. When And at the peak of fighting, it was in strategy consulting. I was so hardcore, focused on being linear and analytical. I had to fall pretty heavily on my face in my personal life in order to get to a place to understand that I will keep getting shaken if I don't go figure out how to stand in my voice. And so while at work, it looked like I was all strong and she the reality was I wasn't fitting in and it was definitely a bit frustrating. Personally, what was happening, if you remember, I talked about man in business school we were moving towards the path of marriage and as we got closer his parents were excited my parents were like hey when's this ring coming and it was earth showering for me and i'm sure for him as well samia i don't want our kids to be disadvantaged because they're not going to be white if i married you and we had children they wouldn't be white and it wouldn't work out and so i'd like to say this is the first time that happened to me it was actually the second time and it was the only two times i thought of love and marriage and so that shook the entire core of me Why is that important to career? It's important because something like that is attached to core center. You don't show up to work as anyone else but you. And I fundamentally had to say, okay, it's all connected. I'm the same girl here and there. And what am I doing that he didn't see that I'm not white? And that's the beginning of me going on a search mission and discovering truths about myself because until then I had never spent any time in self-awareness. It was very much about analyzing others. And it was one of the first truths that came out of that process. I had begun on my own was Salma. You've been so involved in fitting in that you don't realize how much you've become white, mainstream white in your culture and everything from the way you dress to the way—not so much you speak, but in the way that you don't embrace the nuances of your culture and your roots in India. And so. Doing that allowed me to climb where I was in my corporate career, and I really couldn't blame my then boyfriend for having seen white until he had to procreate with me. He didn't walk out the door, I did. I wasn't fully me. Had we married, and more than likely he would've made his quote unquote sacrifice and married a non-white person would've worked out. It was my awakening to say, you have completely killed his inner voice so you could sound and have the privilege of a white person. That was the beginning of self-awareness. You leave bearing Point. Mm-hmm. Why? So Barry Point at the time was going through a financial and spiritual crisis at the same time. The, the then CEO, really played the game very poorly so in financial terms we had day sales outstanding those 120 days what that means is if you're it doesn't matter how much revenue you're bringing in if you're not collecting you are in deep doo-doo. I could have continued in consulting. Consulting doesn't give you the ability to roll up your sleeve and actually implement this idea. I knew who I was by now. And someone who were who was, you? Someone who would disrupt the business as usual. I needed the latitude to go into an industry that was ripe with
1: disruption and that was technology. So this is when you went to Dell Tech? I did. And how did you find that opportunity? The head
0: of sales and consulting she had gone on to become the head of sales of this, this company, Dell Tech. So Carolyn Perron, I went and met and I say, Carolyn, you know, I think I want to. She just nabbed me and she said, we're looking for a product marketing person. It's mainly strategy. You've already done it. Sizing markets, messaging, you got this. So what does Dell Tech do? We had an ERP specifically for project-run businesses. What are project-run businesses? Architects, engineers, consultants, government contracting.
1: So you have the strategy experience. What other skills did it require for you to be successful in that job?
0: Evangelism. Product marketing is primarily about taking the vision of the product the company and putting in the language of the customer and evangelizing. You're spending 25 to 30 percent of your time on a soapbox. Another big part is to start seeing the trends in the marketplace and translate that into market requirements and be able to work with the product team on the other one is driving demand. How do you drive demand to a product line? We would hook them in with the value and then demonstrate the product and the rest is history.
1: You were there for a few years. Mm-hmm. How did you leave?
0: At the time, uh, leadership was changing, and most of the folks who had groomed me, and including Carolyn, were all exiting left. And I was no different than anyone else. When your senior leadership leaves, gives you a moment to pause and go, "Is this where I want to be? Where is the future for me?" And uh, one of the things I recognized was all the things I wanted to gain from the company in terms of building a brand, driving demand, becoming product marketing strategy. I've gotten all those pieces and I wanted to explore more. And again, I hadn't gone looking Jeff, who had been my mentor in business school, came back and said, hey, I just became the chief strategy and marketing officer of Unisys. I was like, I want to go west, Jeff. And he goes, yeah, but you're going to work directly with the CEO and me. And one thing I'd learned through Access and Privilege was sponsorship. Go where there's sponsorship. Mm -hmm. Because that's very different than mentoring and coaching. Sponsor is someone who can give you access to privilege. Period. End of story. So Jeff... With someone that you knew from MBA school? He had seen me in a case competition and said I would work for him. He ended up hiring me and do Bearing Point.
1: So that was a long stretch from... MBA school to going to Unisys Mm -hmm. what did you do in the interim to continue the relationship? relationship
0: we've had such a bond that anytime I pick up the phone it feels like I just spoke to you the other day and we're so vulnerable with each other who I see of me in his eyes when I met him he looked at me and I remember him saying you don't know what I know that I know about you You're a CEO, can you trust me until you see it? So there was this other world relationship of this dude that just believed in me and vice versa. His whole goal was to give me this space where I got to be my fullest. And so when I look back on it, what a freaking gift. I would give my power away in a meeting and go, don't ever give me credit again for what you did. And I go, okay, got it. He was teaching me power. Along the way, what happened was I became his peer. And I remember the first meeting just like, profusely thanking him for getting me to this position like as if I was some acceptance speech right he pulled me aside and said you were in a room full of your equals now by the way he was telling this to a girl I was 34 every man in that room except for one was a 55 plus year old white male Mm -hmm. no one looked like me and to completely get into the space of you belong here overnight wasn't going to happen but it did happen in that instance when he said Don't ever give me credit for what work you have done. That's really what he was teaching me Mm -hmm. was you don't give power away that way. All I did was open the door. And because he didn't understand that doors just don't fly open.
1: (laughs) Because they flew open for him, I'm sure. What he
0: taught me was that you got to feel that that was, of course, the doors flew open until you
1: feel that. No one else will feel it. Um, So as a head of marketing, what did you do for Unisys? So I still reported to a CMO because
0: there was three different business units. Unisys is mostly known as a services company. It's also why. And the technology part was becoming lesser and lesser. But how do you get rid of a business unit that drives most of your profit? Right. I went in because they had convinced me that we are becoming a product company. So that was why I went into Unisys because... I said, wow, what a challenge to take this really old brand and to start re-energizing and bringing what I call a challenger brand. And that's my specialty.
1: So what skills did you have to learn for you to be good in that role?
0: To be the David in the Goliath story. And for that, you can't fight like the big boys. So what does that mean? Gartner is a big, very well-known research institution. And so being established and putting your name into their magic quadrants and being known also opens a lot of doors. Okay, what if your technology hasn't been established? You have a product that's so ahead. You can't use that tool so now as a challenger brand you have to have skills on where could you go and establish that you are the brand to follow And oh, by the way forget the brand that you are the technology type to follow the way you do that with challenger brands is you completely ignore all the other type of marketing money and spend that people are doing and you start establishing yourself in places that your customers are still looking and then you start using language um, other things that say you know, for example, one of our campaigns we ran was you can't hack what you can't see. Our technology was about cloaking. Cloaking and then shredding information into such tiny bits that nobody could pick it up until it got to the other end of the pipe. That caught a lot of momentum. So we just drove business by questioning status quo. And boy, I have literally spent my entire life to be that
1: person. <laughs> okay. Sounds like Jeff. Was very instrumental in helping you at this job. Were there any other people or situations that were influential in preparing you for your next role?
0: So if Jeff were here, he'd ask me to correct you. All he did was open the
1: door, and
0: there was literally nothing else he did. And I'm not saying that because I'm sure Jeff will be listening to this. <laughs> if he knows I'm speaking a podcast, it has nothing to do with his desire to help me or anything like that. But I'd reached a place in my game where the doors were all open. I just needed to walk through, and I started to do that. I started to spend more time with Dominic who was the head of the business unit. And then he was the one who went to Quincy and said, I want her to run marketing for me. Um, very strong, paternal leadership with a lot of, you're here because I trust in your ability and you can run with it. And so that trust again, since you asked which person, His trust in me, he never one day looked at me any differently than his chief technology officer or the gentleman to this day who's one of my close friends. We were a tight team.
1: So Dominic, when you went to him, what types of questions or things did you do in order to, I'm not going to say exert your power, but to showing you how to step into your power mm-hmm. as a CMO?
0: You know, Don and I spent 30 minute clips. He taught me that you didn't need time to access power. You needed energy and you spend your energy wisely. So the fact that he would give me 30 minutes meant something. The point being, yeah, we did talk about his daughters and he clearly had a sense of raising strong women. And more importantly, power or establishing your sense of self-inner voice, all of that was about leaving all the other voices of, oh my God, I don't belong here. Come straight to the issue. Call the issue out. Hey, is someone on the team not playing well? And is that impacting your ability to deliver? Ask him for advice. If you think he can solve the problem, that's it. So the the communication was always clear of any stories. So clean, clear language, um, vulnerable, being able to say this I don't know how to do or this is not going to work out well. Always knowing my details when I walked in so he can rely upon me when he would step in. And then I'd ask questions like, It's one of my favorite questions. Why do we think we'd fail? Because there's always that energy of this won't work out. And I make room for people to say it won't work out because. So when they cleared all the stuff, and I wouldn't try to solve all their problems, but 80% of it would disappear the minute they voiced it. So I only had to contend with 20% of the BS. And out of the 20%, 10% was legit. So he watched these kind of things and just kept making room for me to do it. I think
1: there were like two key things from your interview is owning your power. And then making room.
0: There's one other thing, if I may, Mm -hmm. and that has to do with Quincy. Quincy, who was the chief marketing officer, he now is the chief marketing officer for IBM's cloud business. And he was the first place where I fully felt safe to keep failing. And he would just make the space to go, enough to go, okay, that wasn't how it was supposed to go and these are the consequences but that's okay stand up so one of the things i notice that is across a lot of the alpha women myself included is because of what we believe we have to do to get to where we got we tell ourselves we cannot fail Unfortunately, you cannot get past middle management and you will not sustain leadership. Why? Because you are transmitting this energy of I cannot fail, and you have an entire team, an entire business that will not sustain itself because you just told everyone with your energy you cannot fail. The biggest part about, and call it a ladder, to where I am now is this complete freedom to fuck up.
1: But what does that look like from a leader? I feel that sometimes leaders say that, but then their actions don't match what they are saying. They're so, not really allowing yeah. it to happen.
0: what mm-hmm.
1: What was it about Quincy and your current mm-hmm. boss that let you know that that was really true? I'll take Shiva because
0: we've dovetailed right into mm-hmm. our, my current <laughs> position. Shiva and I are off by a year. And why do I say that? Because there's a sense of kinmanship of experience. But he, in terms of experiencing building a business, he's eons ahead. He built a $15 million business way before I ever stepped in. And board had said, you need a CMO. So I'd walked into a position where he had brought me in because he was told he needed me. And so he left a lot of leeway and rope. So what did I do? I ran with it because I thought I needed to demonstrate results immediately. One of the agencies I hired sucked up a big part of our budget and they were a big company PR company they sucked at giving us the attention and it was humiliating and it was so much money for us when I look back spending money to make money was where I'd come from and so I wasn't willing to take the ownership of that that had happened and it was my CEO who stepped in and said look the reason you're doing what you're doing is because I pushed you. It's my sense of impatience that got you where you are. I told the board, it's me that drove you. And in that moment, he made it okay for me to fuck up because he told me in that moment, you fuck up, I got your back and I'm the one this falls on, not you. So now get up, go. But this time, the rope's going to be a lot tighter and that I did not like. So for a good year, we had a tight rope and we had to walk that plank together and And now we walk in, we have this choreography of how we walk into deals, how we walk into clients that we're implementing. I am his wingman. I build him up. It wouldn't have happened if he didn't step in and make it okay. Can you please snap out of your ego and stop thinking that you got to get it all right? Because the longer you stayed locked in that place of ego the less useful you are.
1: So how did the CEO find you? He actually found
0: someone who worked for me and she reached out to me and said, this executive recruiter company has come looking for me. And at that point I'd gotten very clear of what I was looking for. I had said to people who knew me, hey, unless it's a seat at the table, at a disruptive technology company. I'm just going to do consulting projects. I'm good. I've just been laid off from unison. And I had, by the way, went west. I built my own pipeline for a consulting project. For the life of me, I didn't think I'd be in LA, but here I am. This is what I've found time and again. We hedge our bets because we believe that will give us a wider portfolio of opportunities. Reality actually worked quite the opposite. When you drop all you burn your bridges and you drop everything else and you said i'm walking that path and i don't need to walk back this way and that's what i'm choosing i think it was two weeks later that my colleague knocked on my door and said hey i think i have something great in la and i went yeah, okay and within three weeks of that they hired me oh wow so life does work that way i always say there's freedom and commitment and in fact that's the only kind of freedom and when you fully commit all the other noises just go away yeah but key words
1: Fully commit. Fully commit. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. So you are working at Seven Lakes Technology, but you also have another special... Special project that you're working on. Do you want to tell everyone about that?
0: Definitely. If you haven't caught on to the theme in this podcast, I've only dropped Alpha Woman in there a few times. Throughout my journey of self-awareness and using business as my spiritual grounds to for growth, what I recognized was, boy, it would have been great while I was going through all of this. Had there been a place that told me right in the beginning, fuck up and fuck up a lot and experiment, have hypothesis, cultivate this incredible curiosity, if I could just take those 10 years and put that many more quests in front of me and make it a normal part of my living. I can't help but think what that would have done for me to not necessarily dismiss my alpha, but to make that alpha in me far more focused. And so what I'm creating is a digital lab designed for alpha women to practice their inner voice. But I think the biggest distinction in this lab is this. As an alpha woman, I've chased spirituality like I did everything else, like a goal. It doesn't work that way. It's a lifestyle. Soul Quotient is the lab's name. The idea of being part of this membership is to connect with other women who operate in extremes, And not for that to go away but when you operate on the extremes how can you now be amongst a group of women with whom you don't have to explain yourself that's the soul quotient lab
1: that um, is going to launch in september well now we are on to our like rapid fire section so when you need a boost of confidence what do you do
0: what i just did i take incredible deep breaths there's something about creating space So usually when I don't feel confidence, it's because I've felt like the space, like I have no space to be. And so what I do is I create space. I just breathe like unnaturally long breaths, like I'm having some kind of possessed, you know, shamanic breath. And it just all of a sudden makes
1: me feel like a superstar. It really helps in board meetings. Okay so I have this book it's called listography and it is a way of doing a autobiography of yourself through list I want you to pick a number between 5 and 135 okay 9 places you've lived Oh
0: that's a good one <laughs> Bangalore, Baltimore, Washington D.C., Columbia, Maryland, uh, Rio Vista, California,
1: and Los Angeles, California. Oh, you've lived some places. Yeah. Very cool. <laughs> what is something that you geek out about? So I
0: love love teeny bop music. Examples?
1: Is, so they're not
0: memorable enough for me. Okay, so I, ca- I can't claim for it <laughs> to be memorable. But you I can sing say, it. Re, no, no, Neither. I can't do either. <laughs> but what I will tell you is the reason I say geek out is I live in such depth most of the time, revenue, numbers, soul quotient. I mean, come on. Right. And so when I just need to be, I'll just turn on like Korean pop. So you're, you you're a big
1: cape? K-pop <laughs> fan. <laughs> I have a friend that is totally into K-dramas and she tries so hard for me to get into them too. She's like, I promise you, Yolanda, if you just try this one, you're going to be like, why did it take you so long to get into this? And I'm like, okay. (laughs) What I like to ask people about is squad care. So who are some people in your life that you turn to when you need help? that squad has changed over periods of my life
0: as you can imagine as you grow into who you are that changes the one constant is my mother she is my nutritionist my spiritual mama jama she can feel my energy so she's my squad from just her presence and her friendship and her ability to call out my bullshit with grace. Another person on my squad is my trainer. Any good leader should get a trainer. Just someone who just gets you out of your seat and go work out. And he's a wellness coach, Mike Gonzalez. He runs Entrepreneurship Academy. So he's a big part of that squad because uh, there's a sense of discipline and rigor and also the woman that I'm becoming that he's a big part of. And I would say the third person, without a doubt, is my current CEO. I spend 60 hours a week with this man. There's a level of leaning in and being an open soul that that works for us.
1: Who are some women of color possibility models? And that's someone who shows you that it's possible to live your dreams. So there's some people that inspire you. Does it
0: have to be fictional characters too?
1: i could no <laughs> my only
0: requirement is that it's a woman of color so i'm feeling slightly ashamed because i tend to be terrible with remembering names but i remember their entire persona and their spirit so please go with me here there is a woman who started i believe her name is ruchita um, a woman who started a an organization named apne Op. it is an organization in india that primarily focuses on extricating women from brothels because red light districts are huge in india and And Mm -hmm. prostitution is a way of how these women have to make a livelihood. And then their daughters get into it at the minute they come of age so she brings them out of these gets them educated and moves them into spaces and what it takes to go be in that space and bring women who otherwise wouldn't have had that just insane so to me that's incredibly powerful there's another woman named the name of kieran Beatty. she is and i don't know if she still is a police commissioner that brought yoga into prisons and started to transform men who had like committed insane amount of crime and started to holistically change policing coming here to america i think i'd be remiss if i didn't bring up oprah because on tv i was mainly white people she was the only person of color and i went, oh good there's a connection and then watching her and tracking her career has been phenomenal and i love what she's done to bring other women in i mean i just gave you a list of them i could keep going on it's
1: well you said a fictitional character but you didn't tell me a fictitional character
0: well olivia (laughs) poe You know what I'm saying? I was in D.C. I was living in D.C. when Scandal
1: came out. Wait, what seasons? Because there is a point where Olivia is no, I'm no longer a fan of Olivia. Way earlier. Okay. Way,
0: way earlier. Like seasons one and two? Yeah. Olivia?
1: Okay. Exactly.
0: So like, yes. And so back then, living in Washington, D.C. and being around all of that and then recognizing that kind of power and being a fixer, my God. Really, it's Shonda Rhimes that I'm praising.
1: Okay. If people want to find you online, where would you suggest they go?
0: TheSoulQuotient.com.
1: If you can go back in time and give your teenage self some advice, what would you tell her?
0: Stop leaving your body. I know that you, your first experiences with your body was forceful and sex was taken from you. Stop leaving your body. Keep going back into it and stop disconnecting from it because your body will give you a lot of information. Stay in it as much as you can. And you are not just your beauty, you have a lot more to offer than your sex.
1: Do you think that that affected how you approached? things in your career as well
0: 100 because you cannot exercise power if you're not in your body if you can't claim your sex first there's a reason in any culture we call it the roof chakra it's it's the place from which your energy source and for a woman her womb there's a reason it's a whole it's a place of creation it's a place where nothingness becomes everythingness and there is nothing else in the world that does that so if you fundamentally disconnect from that place of power of creation then everything about me became about looking for validation externally finding healing externally and not knowing that i didn't need to seek it outside of myself and finally that because we are the only source of creation then there's a power that comes with just being in the room you literally need to do nothing else when you're a woman Your presence itself is all that is required. And you cannot claim
1: that until you go back into your body. And there you have it, standouts. I really enjoyed chatting with Salmia. Here are a few things I learned or that stood out to me during our conversation. Number one, I learned that Salmia was born in Bangalore and she moved to the US when she was 16. I was shocked when I found this out during our interview because I just assumed she was born in the US because she doesn't have an accent. Number two, I also learned that I've been pronouncing Salmia's name incorrectly since I met her and she didn't even correct me during our interview. It reminded me of one of my favorite quotes by Warsen Shire, and she says, give your daughters difficult names. Give your daughters names that command the full use of tongue. My name makes you want to tell me the truth. My name doesn't allow me to trust anyone that cannot pronounce it right. And then number three, One of the things that I learned that influenced a lot of Salmia's life decisions was her need to be in close proximity to her parents. She chose an undergraduate college that was near her parents. Her first job because of its location to her parents and her parents had to agree to move with her to the West Coast before she made the move to California. I wish I would have dug deeper into this family dynamic and asked her how this decision came to be and how it has affected her life. After each episode, I'd like to pose a question and get listeners to share their thoughts about the topic. So this episode's listener feedback question is related to the story of Salmia's boyfriend. And when he finally realized that if they got married and had kids, their kids wouldn't be white. But what that helped Salmia realize was how much she'd become mainstream white in her culture. So much so that her boyfriend was colorblind. Okay, y'all, that's me being sarcastic. Back to the question I have for you. Instead of asking for stories about how you've hidden parts of yourself in order to fit in, I want to do something a little bit different. So tell me, what is something about yourself that you are very vocal about or you wish you were more vocal about? It can be an accomplishment, a personality trait, whatever. I want to hear your brags, so tell me about them. Record yourself, fill in yourself, and send your audio to podcast at notthestandout.club. I'll compile a bunch of responses into a mini episode. The background music for this episode is from Ryan Little. All things we discussed in this episode can be found on the show notes page at nts.today forward slash or. If you like this episode, I would really appreciate it if you shared it with your friends and also rated the podcast on your podcast listening platform. This helps other people find the show. Go to nts.today forward slash rate for instructions on how to rate the podcast.